from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, the SiriusXM Business Radio Studio, looking onto beautiful Locust Walk on a gorgeous, soft April morning. Spring is finally here. It took its time, but it's here, and we're loving it. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Morning, guys. Hey, How's good morning. Going? going fine, going fine. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We're here two hours every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. You can join the conversation if you'd like. We'd love to hear from you at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us. Email address is businessradio at siriusxm.com. Businessradio at siriusxm.com. We don't get many emails lately. Slackers, slacker listeners on the email front. Matt Johnson will take your email. He'll even take it. He'll even take it mid show. We have responded to emails mid show. If you'd rather drop us a note, but it's a great way. To reach us if you're listening, one of the times we're replayed, we're replayed five times over the over the next week. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We've got guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of next hour, as usual. We've got open lines throughout the show, but a general discussion here in the first half hour, as well as in our closing segment, segment last quarter. So Shane, Eric, Eric, it's good to see you back in the studio. Buddy. I've been I've been watching lots of sports, but unfortunately, you know, teaching on Wednesday mornings. But I'm back. I'm back for like eight straight weeks now. All so right. I'm happy to be back with the crew here on Wharton Moneyball. Glad glad to have you back. And we're very curious. I mean, you you probably watch as much sports as the rest of us combined, and so it's always That's... especially interesting. Safe bet, right? Yeah, I feel like in your absence, we've 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 been low on facts. <laughs> We've been we, we've been we've been our usual you know we've got a lot of hypotheses we've got a lot of I mean we've got a lot of opinions and who's been here to but, talk about momentum yeah no nobody nobody no, I mean I, it, it's gone back to non existing <clears throat> we've had guests to talk about momentum well, that's true, and remember yeah. also I have like a room with three TVs in it so that counts as triple <laughs> yeah when like, I have three different sporting events on yeah, at I, the I same just, time I, I just like I, my I, control room I assume you've got a den at home that basically looks like those images from inside the actual telecast booth like, they stole like my the idea i have a patent like for that, that idea actually like... for in-home and, use and then do you have do you have each of your kids on control panels monitoring yeah. they can change the channels real quickly you're directing them with headsets <laughs> uh almost that's that's coming soon quickly coming pan soon. over the sixers game <laughs> that's coming soon um but of course what caught it had to caught everybody's eye on sports i mean come on it had to be sergio garcia winning the masters yep but you know this is why when you're a statistician, you view things a little bit differently. Obviously, I had some joy for him, um, you know, uh, to go, he, just so everybody knows, he had played 74 consecutive majors, and he was 0 for 74. Not surprisingly, that's the largest number that someone had ever played before winning their first. He was oh, he had played 74 consecutive, by the way, he played 74 consecutive majors, sorry if I said masters, 74 consecutive yeah. majors, which is 18 and a half years worth of majors. He's 37, yeah. which means he started at age 19. And he's never missed a major, which shows a lot about his durability and his ability to play. That's ex- that's I didn't know he that. He had that is never fantastic. missed a major since he first qualified. Was, was his first one the PGA outside of, in Medina? That is correct. So the, I mean, not only I mean, we all he just kind of splashed onto the well, scene. In 1999, and he's mm-hmm. played 74 consecutive ones, and he was 0 for 74. So now you start to think to yourself, how can you measure how? extraordinary that is. So I had a few thoughts since we're here on Wharton yeah, Moneyball. Yeah, we're yeah. a statistics and sports and business show. So Shane, I'd love your thoughts on this. The first thing you could do is to say, 
Let's imagine his odds of winning any ma- any major was, let's just say, 5%, so a 20 to 1 odds. You take .05, you multiply it by 74, you get 3.7 wins. You could compute a standard error of that, and you say, okay, 3.7 minus 0, that's his exceedance, and then you divide by a standard error, and it's something like 20, you know, 10 to 12 standard deviations. So, yeah, so, I, so wait, 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 I'm just we, assuming you know .05. Yeah, that's yeah. The big thing I'm here. assuming .05, and by the way, so I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying if you average that, though, over probably the last 40 of them, it's probably not that surprising that he would have averaged about a 20 to 1 odds. The first 20, probably not, because he well, was an up-and-coming player. He might have been 100 to 1, 110 to 1. This is what the calculation doesn't doesn't take into account. That calculation doesn't take into account. is we, he, The majority of his peak years were played at the time when a single player dominated the sport like no player has ever right. dominated that yeah. sport. Yeah, that's still fair. But, I mean, you could still compute his marginal probability. I'm just saying I'm, it's a lot lower. In those years, his pro- I mean, Tiger Woods basically won every fourth major. That sucks up a lot of that probability. you got to lower everybody's probability during that time. No, I agree with that, that but, but you would agree, even during the Tiger Woods era, which you agree. By the way, you have the numbers right. It's about a fourth for Tiger Woods yeah. during that era. That leaves 75% of the probability, let's say, for everybody else, roughly. Right. He was in that next group of 20, which would give him a 3 to 4% chance. I'm just saying, I mean, I'm not saying that the last group has no probability. Cause Kate well, I thought you t- gave him a 3 to 4% chance before conditioning on Tiger. No, no, I'm just commenting. All right, so let's even per say major. we call it a 3% chance for each major. So I'm just saying, it's cut, still cut 74. It down by All right, so fourth, it could be yeah. two majors. In it. Well, that's yeah. one way to do yeah. it. Another way to do it, which a lot of people think about, is let's say you flip the coin with probability. 0.97. That's the odds that he's going to lose. Let's yeah. just say it's, let's go to 3%. We've, we've talked him down to 3% chance. Well, I'm, I'm happy good. to go to that. Yeah. So what's the chance that you would flip that coin 74 consecutive times? Yeah, good. Tails, tails, lose, lose, right. lose, lose, lose. So that's another way you can well, compute it. Well, you then got to multiply that by the number of players who could possibly have this futility streak, right? I was going to get to that, so I was going to yeah. get to Well, but we're talking about... We're talking Shane, about Shane's, Shane's had his coffee this nah, morning. No, he's right. But we're talking about what's the probability of him doing it, okay. not, yeah. not, not is there re- any player... What's the probability that, of any player having a futility streak? So no, no, but this is way, an, that's an important discussion. What is, what is 90, 97 to the 74th? 0.97 to the 74th? Uh, I don't. I, Where's I, Adi? Adi can do these I, things in his yeah. head. There is, I'm sure, a very good approximation to that. Um, it's got to be some extreme. I'm, Cade's going to do that right now when I talk about it. So then the other way to do it would Here be. Here we go. 10%. 0.97 to the 74th? It's 10%. Not, not as low as you would have thought. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, maybe that's all right. So that's not just, as rare. I'll just sort of say. And what like, if it's 0.95, with, by with the way? Regards, I'm just with, drop with regards to your first calculation. Uh, which is kind of his expected number of wins. I believe the Economist had an article this week that basically yes, did that did. calculation did. And, and like may, and did take into account Tiger Woods and his competition. And I think they came out to only in like sort of a like one point seven expected majors that he would have won. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Then, so by the way, point nine five to the seventy fourth is two and a quarter percent. So it drops it. It, you, you give him a little bit more probability each, just a little bit more each tournament, and it cuts the likelihood of observing that. Pretty dramatically, but even yeah. then, it's not like two percent events don't ever happen. I well, mean, it's yeah. like it's not like it's one in a hundred thousand or something. It's not that. That's I, I agree and, with and, you. And again, like the sort of like the more reasonable kind of probability of like what's the chance that any player would have a We're futility streak like that? That we would observe such a person. They may not be named Sergio Garcia in most 
you know, parallel universes. But well, that was going to be is then then all of a sudden it becomes yeah. quite like. Well, that's yeah. the perfect segue into the third approach, which is let's. This is something we talk about all the time on Morton Moneyball. Let's com- com- compute his let's call it contemporaneous set. So let's look at all the players who have basically been in his bin of ranking. So let's call it top twenty in yeah. the world. Top, t- f- you know, he's been top twenty in the world for probably fifteen of those years, if not more. If not yeah. more, how many majors, or what's the expected or average number of major wins for those people that have been there as well? Now, of course, you- it's hard to get that set. Well, they, I mean, they, well, they have done that calculation yes. over all, like the economists again. <laughs> in addition to calculating this for Sergio, calculated this for a lot of other players that, like you know, had long futility streaks or whatever, or played in a lot of majors. And Colin didn't. Montgomery comes to mind. Yeah, Lee, West, Lee Westwood well, is a Lee, Lee Westwood. Well, Lee in Westwood's fact, I now- both Lee. I thought Lee Westwood actually had more. No, he doesn't. A so longer I'll, streak. I'll tell you the number. It's I just because they just flashed it up at the Masters. So uh, Sergio Garcia had been 0 for 74. Lee Westwood was 0 for 72. Oh so my. he's now 0 for 73. Oh my! So wow. right Lee Westwood heel, is right heels. there on okay, the heels yeah, yeah. of him. All right. So but, but so, what, so real, it clearly real, happens relatively often. Oh, that's I mean that's that's a nice yeah. point supporting Shane and kind of take defusing things like not well, only does it happen it happens to a guy that's basically a contemporary of his and everyone recognizes he just can't quite get it done seems yeah. to like not quite get it done so d- tell me that so do you think there is something about Sergio's game was it pure chance that he went that long or was it something about his game. I mean, I, th- he, I, I think, I mean, he's, he also, head case or making in, right. under in addition pressure. to just right. having the streak, he did also have a relatively, I mean, compared to Lee Westwood, I think Sergio has had a much more, better career, much more wins. Yep. But uh, that's right. And, but I think Sergio did in the majors did also display in addition to like having not won one, a lot of kind of like Sunday sort of meltdowns or, mm-hmm. or, or sun, Sunday fades at least. Sunday fades, right? Yeah. Right. So so Sergio went into Sunday at a lot of majors in contention or leading and faded out in each one of what? them. And and that's sort of like so that points to there there could potentially be a psychological aspect to his particular like futility streak. Uh, more so than other players. What's actually interesting is, at least for the Masters, they show this yeah. interesting stat. Actually, um, Sergio didn't choke on Sunday. He never did. He choked on Saturday. <laughs> he actually had the worst <laughs> scoring average of any player that's played, like, let's say, more than 10 rounds, I think they said, at the Masters. His Saturday scoring average was the worst in the history of the Masters. Wow. And so he faded Saturday before okay. he even got yeah. into contention on Sunday. Do, do you, I, I'm really intrigued by the traje- the lifetime proje- trajectory of performance under pressure. But I, I, the, the, my simple hypothesis, which I'm quite happy to be wrong, is that there's some advantage to being young and dumb. Yes. And, yeah. and then and you then start it, forgetting your failures or, what, or, or remembering your failures. Rem- you never had any failures when you're 18 yeah. year old Jordan Spieth, essentially. And then as you get older, you accumulate these these failures. And unless you're really good mentally, you can always go back and mind those things when it comes mm-hmm. time to be under pressure again. I, yeah. and I think there's, I believe that's true. Um, and then the, the natural question, building on your point, Kate, is a lot of people have now asked the question, so how much, what's his likely number of major wins now? Yeah. I mean, now that... Does I mean, it change? Is he gonna, well, yeah, that's at what the, At what age did Phil win his first? Yeah. Because he was... Because he's, he he, he's he the was poster child for this kind of late career breakout, right? Because he didn't go as far, but he had higher potential. He was potential. always thought as kind of a choke artist in, in the majors, and then he won the one... I don't and, know and the it, answer, but it's definitely a lot younger than 37, because Phil had never won the Masters. He may have won his first Masters, I think I'm going to guess at 32 or 33 is when he won his first so you, Masters. So you would like to run a model which asks, what's the impact of winning your first major? Correct. And you want to 
can control for a, a quality of play, which Correct. is going to be hard to do. But if yeah. you could do age. that, you would hypothesize. Yeah, and age. Control for quality of play and age, and then ask, do you get a bump? Mm-hmm. Which is well, basically the psychology look, of winning. I like, I like, I think we all like this in in this world. We, there's a, they're flawed in some way, but I like to do envelope calculations. So let's just say we he's 37. You know, let's imagine he has five more peak years, and I'm being generous, but let's because most no, people don't golf, win. Guys are playing golf. I know, but only, I know, now. but the number of people that have ever won majors beyond the age of 42 is very, very low. Like Jack Nicklaus won a major beyond the age of 42. People say Crenshaw. Phil Mickelson, Phil Mickelson, Crenshaw won one, but it's literally maybe there's four or five majors up that have ever been won by but they people. They are moving that way. No, there are. And right, you don't say, want to look only at the ones who won. All right, let's say he's got. Uh, Tom Watson missed a seven-foot putt to win the British at Open age at age 50. Yeah, almost, <laughs> age 58. All right, let's say he's got till age 45. He's got eight more good years. So he's got 32 more majors to, at, at his peak, let's say. Let's imagine you go back to your odds of 3%, 4%. Even if you bump him from, let's say, 2 or 3%. He was 25 to 1, by the way, going into this. So he was 25 to 1 going into the Masters. Let's imagine... It's up to 5%. Let's pretend it's up to 5%. So we'd say on expectation he's going to win maybe one more. You know, just take the number of majors times .05, you know. Yep. I'm I, sure. I think yep. that's reasonable. Back of the I envelope, good back of the envelope calculation. I mean, I like it's envelope calculation. I, I especially like it if that envelope is big enough to contain my laptop. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. But you would say the following. It's good advice for people or our listeners out here on Wharton Moneyball that are listening. If someone were to say to you, oh, I think he's going to win five more majors now that he's broken through. Well, an envelope calculation well, first you would... S- you bet you slap him across How the face. How many drinks is that person <laughs> Yeah, no, but I know, but I'm just saying, I think envelope calculation, this is one of the things I talk right. to my kids about all the that's time. That's a baseball so, bat calculation. They're, they're, they're a good sanity check. No, no, they're a good sanity check. So they what are. base yeah. rate are you assuming? Oh, well, five out of 25, that would be 20%. Well... N- Tiger Woods is the only one that has won yeah. 20. So these envelope calculations, yeah. I think, and, and, put and, and, you in a realm of, am I living in the world of reality? And yeah. though, 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 you know, the fact that we're willing to take two minutes out of our, our time at the bar to do this calculation to check our friend's assertion is why we keep getting invited out to the bars. <laughs> and there you are. <laughs> That's right. People live for it. This is Warden Moneyball here this morning with uh, Shane Jensen, Eric Brattle. This is Cade Massey. We're here every Wednesday, every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Give us a ring, one eight four four warden one eight four four nine four two. 7866. What else at the Masters? It was a, it was a fun tournament. I was super impressed with Justin Rose. That guy's going to win some more majors. Mm-hmm. He he missed a couple putts on 17 and 18, but they were good putts and real tough to read was my interpretation. He put a good stroke on the ball under immense pressure. Two, and, you know, extra hole didn't play that well, but lots of folks that that happens to. He 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 was a very worthy competitor all day long he's going to win more he, he is he's he's just one of these guys who he's kind of the opposite and we're just telling stories here but he's the opposite of the sergios where it's like the guy's just he's just a he he, he feels like the kind of guy's going to take other people down he, right. he's not he's been playing at that level since he was 18 years old at first british and he went he went pro he was as an amateur he was very competitive in a british at 18 and he went pro the next day like just straight into it and uh i, I think he's got some coming I would I, I agree with that. I thought it was a great duel at the end where, you know, uh, I agree. R- Rose missed a putt at 17. Uh, I was actually more surprised he missed the putt at 18. Uh, when he struck the putt, I'm like, that's going right yeah. into the hole. Yeah. It was the right speed. Yeah. It was yeah. the right line. Um, you know what? You know what? Golfers, I was listening to an analysis of the golfers on the golf channel after the Masters was over. And what they said they liked about Justin Rose's game is, and this is interesting, they even use the word variance because of the way he swings and the tightness of his body. In other words, he does he's not flailing all over the place. Like you look at his swing 
And they were saying, they literally used the word angular variance is so low. Like, he's so consistent in the way he strikes the ball. And so they were actually talking about guys Mm -hmm. who have kind of, you know, Phil Mickelson, why hasn't he won more majors? Because the variant, they were even talking about it, the variance in his swing, you know, this his you know the face of the club hitting the ball is much greater than a Justin is, Rose. Is there, his body, they, yeah, great. they look. They use body mechanics and they can measure it now, where they can look at so you know, not, how many moving parts. A, it's not just a guy watching and saying. It's actually no, no, no. But is, it, is that is that empirical? I mean, empirical. Do, do, well, it's empirical. They look. Obviously, they look at Justin Rose, so it's empirical. Have they actually like done this across all golfers? Measure this angler thing. And then correlated with variance in it's performance. Cer- it's certainly conventional wisdom in golf that you want you want as lo- as low variance in your swing as possible, and especially because pressure is going to increase variance. It's just mm-hmm. conventional wisdom, but you're you're right. You could you could add. Do they yeah. age better? The ones with the low variance. You that would you would you would think so, but this is you know, again you're something sounding that's like measurable. a real scientist this morning. In the I know sense it's, of, it's really it's not my usual. Well, thing. you know why? It's because you're on. wearing a Phillies instead of a Red Sox hat, that's so that's true. not choking your head with that stupidity up there on top. Oh. That's what's happening. Oh, oh yes. here we go. Yeah, yeah. All those all, all those dumb people at MIT and Harvard wearing the Red Sox hats. <laughs> All right, guys. That's it. Was a great Masters, a fun little introduction to golf again. 2017 for most of us. What else has caught your eye around the world of sports? Well, I, I'm going to go to the NBA, but a lot of people think, well, of course he's going to talk about Harden and Westbrook and who should win the MVP. But I'm not oh. going to go there first. Okay. I want to talk about something else that's gone under the radar, which I don't think should. So here's my vote for Coach of the Year in the NBA. Okay. There's suppose I told you there was a team. Let's assume they win tonight. It's they're favored. That went eleven and thirty in the first half of the season, and thirty and eleven the second half of the season. Which, by the way, is the greatest reversal in the history of the NBA. You might say that person would be coach of the year. Does anybody have? Well, a... I mean, was this person coach only for that second half? No. Well, <laughs> no, that, not necessarily. To then. Give him demerits for the first half. I, yeah. I, Either. I mean, was it, well, you know, he was there, right, during the first half? That person was there. Okay. Does anybody know? Do you guys know who that coach is? Mm-hmm. It's the coach of the Miami Heat, Eric Spolstra. Mm-hmm. And I've been watching this guy who never got credit. You know, he had the big three. Of course, anybody could have won the title with LeBron and D-Wade and Chris Bosh. This guy is a tremendous—I mean, his best player is an offensively challenged seven-foot, very talented center, by the way, Hassan Whiteside. And then you can't name anybody yeah. else on the Miami Heat. And if they win tonight and either the Indiana Pacers or the Chicago Bulls lose, they'll actually be in the playoffs, by the is way. Is this the last game? This is the last game of the regular wow. seasons tonight. All right. And, if, again, if they win and Indiana or Chicago loses, they make the playoffs. Right. I just thought this amazing turnaround, I agree, he gets credit for 11-30, and 30, but he also gets credit for 30-11. and 11. And I just thought that was one of the most amazing. It is actually it the is largest pretty, gap between first half, second half. Pretty, it is had. pretty incredible. So, so poor number one seed who gets them if they come in at number eight. Well, that's, they're playing 30-11 clip in the second half of the season. Well, I'm not saying Cleveland. And by the way, this is another topic of discussion. So as people may know that listen on Wharton Moneyball, uh, Cleveland is now in the two spot. Yeah, The Celtics have overtaken them. Uh, another Coach of the Year candidate. And, yeah. uh, Brad Stevens is in my view, always a coach of the year candidate because, you know, they have Isaiah Thomas and a bunch of players you've never heard of on Boston. A lot of people have speculated that, you know, maybe Cleveland would rather not have played the Heat or played the Bulls in the first round, that they may have been happier playing, whether it was um, Indiana or, you know, possibly Milwaukee could slip down or something like that. But that, that, so that caught my eye as well. Um, A lot of people have asked, 
What's the difference if Chicago's one? Or, you know, sorry, Cleveland's yeah. one or two in the playoffs. I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I can sort of see wanting to avoid a particularly hot eight seed, and the eight seeds almost by definition usually go into the playoffs kind of hot because usually it's you know there's but a competition, not that, but not that hot, right? No, not, it's that, not hot. that hot. But there's usually a competition for the eight seed because they almost you, you're selecting for the hot team because one out of like every three, you know, like it's usually a competition between two or three teams to eke into the playoffs and one of the team that's hotter will win that well there's also there's also of course the 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 matter of home court well yeah i was gonna say like you make it i don't think any conference finals the the cavaliers are not gonna like trade home court in the conference final for like you know playing not having slightly hotter miami (laughs) versus like exactly there's no way they would consciously make that decision do the celtics have a chance against the Cavs if we get there 14 series from now well here's the only here's the i need an injury report for that well Right now, there's no one injured on either team. There's no then, one injured. Then no. Right. And so here's the data. That, here's what I looked up. So the Cavs this year against the top three teams in the East are 9-2. and two. Um, In the playoffs, obviously, since LeBron returned to Cleveland, they're 19-2 and two against the East. Um, you may remember the game that was supposedly going to decide the one. 19-2. They're 19-2 and two in the Good playoffs Lord. against the East since LeBron returned to Cleveland. But they're 9-2 and two against the top three teams in the Eastern Conference this year. They're actually not great. They only have 51 wins this year, which is a very low number for the defending champ. But they've champ. done it against lesser teams. They've kind of played down to the Yeah, they've played basically. down. They haven't really... But they don't really play their players, right? I mean, how, how often have we seen playoff Cleveland on the court well, this year? Very little since J.R. Smith was out for like the first 60 games. Kevin Love was injured yeah. for 25 to 30 games. Not, okay. It's not going to be the same team. Okay. Well, either way... Um, okay, you've convinced me that the the East playoffs aren't interesting for the next month. Thank you. But how we, about the how about the West? Well, you know, there's some interesting matchups. You know, there's the one matchup that for some reason always seems to happen in the West: San Antonio versus Memphis. You know, <laughs> just every year these two teams seem to play each other, and everyone's like, "Well, of course, San Antonio is going to rout them." You know, I don't know. Memphis still has Marcus All, yeah. Zach Randolph, Mike Conley, Vince Carter. You know, they. Uh, Tony Allen, they still have a core group of players, so that's kind of interesting. Of course, the one the matchup everyone wants no, is going to see, great... which is locked in. It's Houston versus OKC. First-round yeah. matchup. First yeah. matchup, Harden Westbrook. The two MVPs. Oh, my gosh. I mean, gosh. That's, that's tremendous. Can we just we can just allocate time in every game to just let them go one-on-one. Like The rest of you eight guys have a seat. We're going to play about five minutes of one-on-one between Westbrook and Harden. I think people would be okay with that. That'd be amazing. I think that's oh, what we may see regardless. That's yeah, what we're going mean, to see anyway. I mean, you know. Essentially, what's going to happen yeah. with but, those two guys? You know what's interesting also about it is it also is another kind of more statistical topic that I wanted to bring up. What caught my eye? You know, everyone's saying Westbrook. You know, obviously, since I've last been on the show, even just since last week, he locked in the record for the most triple doubles in a season. He locked in the fact that he's going to average a triple double mm-hmm. for the season. This gets back to your point about uh, Lee Westwood. It relates in the history of the NBA. There have been nine seasons, player seasons, ever, where a guy has averaged 25 points, 8 rebounds, and 8 assists. That's it. Nine in the history of the NBA. Five were done by Oscar Robertson consecutive years between 1962 and 1966. One was by Michael Jordan. And to your point, Shane, three of them are this season. Harden, Westbrook, and the person people always forget... LeBron James. LeBron mm. James is actually having his best season ever statistically, both in terms of efficiency of shooting. He's at a high for rebounds and mm. assists, but three of them. So when you talk about maybe Garcia losing 74 straights and another guy has done 72 straights, not that rare. 
maybe this triple double, and we all agree yeah. we're stat types. The fact if he had been thirty one points, ten rebounds, and nine point five assists, would we have thought that differently right. of him? Right. No. Three of the nine ever are happening this yeah. season in mm-hmm. the NBA. So maybe mm-hmm. his triple-double is not quite as amazing as it is no, since I mean, I, two other guys we, we, we seem see to be ten, doing ten the years same from, thing. Ten years from now, if, if, if you know several players have done average or triple-double, maybe it is. Does just that the, mean assist, the game is changing. Well, the only part of that, so the scoring could be higher. That's easy to observe. Scoring is higher. Matter of fact, almost every, by the way, this you guys, you guys may remember this. Five years ago, everyone was lamenting the NBA because maybe five or six teams were averaging 100 points a game. There's only one team in the NBA this season that is not averaging 100 oh, wow. points a game. Okay, so that means they're obviously that one of those goes up with scoring. One of them goes up indirectly with rebound chances if there are more shots. Yeah, and then the, the tell me this has the game changed in a way that assists go up because that's not a constant, right? If you yeah, you drive styles, to the basket and toss it out to a dude at the three point line. That's it. Right? So three is greater than the, two has changed the game. It really has changed the game. Okay, and if so you look no, at all we, season, need to, we need to norm. We some we need. To, so has anyone done this? A normed Triple double. So given given the opportunities in yeah. the current style of play, how does this stand up to Oscar Robertson, which is a very different game in the mid sixties? Yeah, that's, no, that's that. I mean, I I assume somebody has done it because it's such a great obvious thing, thing to, to do. do. Yeah. Uh, no, but, but it's it's a great analysis yeah. to do. Well, you've done that analysis. I don't say similar in spirit. You've made a claim which everybody agrees. You've said Pedro Martinez's yes, season right. was yeah, maybe we, the greatest season, and maybe even when, except for maybe Bob when, Gibson. When we evaluate pitching, kind of quality, you know, pitch, or pitching or hitting, basically, but mostly when we evaluate great pitching seasons, we kind of automatically norm in our minds, I think, for competition. Right. A little bit, or at least we should if we if we're not doing that. So like Pedro Martinez in 1999 and and 2000, basically being a full point less than every any other pitcher in terms of ERA is especially that itself is impressive. But it's especially impressive given it was in 1999, 2000 when everybody was raking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Cade's mm-hmm. analysis is obviously, I brought up, and maybe mine's a poor man's version of his, I brought up the fact that there are two other players that seem to have similar stats, but Cade's analysis is obviously the more appropriate yeah. one to do, which is to look at some, you know, there's lots of ways you could do it, but even just how exceedance, you know, even if we just computed the number, the average and the standard deviation of the number of assists, even per minute of play, how yep. does his compare to, and by the way, yep. that's why a lot of people say Harden should be the MVP, because his player of Efficiency rating is significantly higher than Westbrook. Do you think that that sounds um, kind of sabermetric esque? Do you is. think NBA is, is anywhere close to a place where they would actually go away from the top line stats, like points scored and towards efficiency? I like, think it's. I, we've I, seen that happen in baseball. We I think, have. Yeah, I think we it's absolutely incredibly did. unlikely that I Westbrook so does not win. I the think MVP. if I think if there is a year, I think if we if we see that yeah. tilting point, um, I think it could be this year because there is. I mean, all the sports. A lot of the sports talk radio shows are saying they think Harden's the MVP. So I'll be very interested to see how it goes. How much? How, how, you, so the, you think the, the the head-to-head competition in the playoffs might swing it one way? No, the voting's done. The voting's done. No, no, no. The voting's done at the end of the regular season. Okay. But I happen to agree. I'd love to see them vote after that playoff exactly. series. Would you? Because you know they're going to be that, that series would basically dictate the entire vote. That's how rational people are. It's, yeah, they, they would. They would. Jettison but then the, the players would know it. They'd be going gang. I mean, not that they're not trying it's their utmost be, in the playoffs anyway. Well, but Tell me this about Westbrook. I mean, the knock on Westbrook is that uh, to, uh, to too much of an extent, 
he just takes the ball when in crunch time. He's like, okay, I'll do this. And yeah. sometimes he doesn't get it done. So I mean, averaging over ha- averaging over ten assists a game does argue somewhat. against It's what him. happened. Yeah, you guys like, remember yeah, OKC versus Golden State, where they had Golden State yeah. down and out, and, and it was OKC the bad devolved. Westbrook in yeah. the last two minutes of the game. This is what I'm saying. So with whenever he's going head to head against Harden, former teammate, um, you know, MVP competitor. What, what's the likelihood that he's going to devolve into that kind of bad Westbrook, if you will? I I hope not. Um, the way I view it, though, is, you know, I've always said to my kids, you know, I, I always go back to this player. You, nobody on the Wharton Moneyball who's not as old as me will remember this guy. This guy, B.J. Armstrong, that played for the championship. Oh, yeah. The first Absolutely. three Chicago Bulls team averaged 14 points a game for the Bulls, went to another he team. He averaged that much? 14. How tall was he? Oh, like my height. At six feet. He was short. Yeah, short little guy. Right. But... He um, he then you know, got a big contract and never averaged more than four or five points again. And so I say two things. One is, who's Russell Westbrook playing with? Like, in other words, who would you rather shoot the ball than him, That's even good. if he's taking? And, right. and, and then my other comment is to my kids all the time is, someone has to shoot the ball. So that's what they have, a shot clock. That's the ball yeah. will be going up to the basket a certain yeah. number of times. That's and true. so Westbrook is going to have the ball in his hand every time. He's going to. That he's yeah. their guard. He plays the second most minutes in the league after LeBron. So he's going to have the ball in his hand. He's going to pass it to someone. Person's going to shoot, or he's going to shoot himself. And yeah. that's why, by the way, people say that Harden's more efficient because Westbrook's been more ball dominant. Either yeah. he's shooting, or pa- or how many times is the ball in his hand? It's a lot more than Harden. All right. So that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School. Huntsman Hall on a gorgeous April morning. This is Cade Massey co-hosting this morning with two of my collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. We are going to be here for the next hour and a half. You can join us, one 844 wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. Or drop us an email. The email address is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. In the next quarter, in the next half hour, we've got Darren May. Darren is founder and head coach of an organization called Every Ball Counts. Going to talk golf and golf analytics with us. Darren, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. We are delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from uh, Palm Beach, Florida. Ah, sounds like a lovely place to be this time of it year. It is. We're very, we're very lucky to be down here. Now, Darren, you don't sound like you were born and raised in Palm Beach, Florida. I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm from um, just out. I was born just outside London, England, and then my parents moved out into the southeast corner. And I've been here since 2003. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, can you tell us how you got involved with golf, and in particular, how you got involved with golf and analytics? Sure. Um, I think as like anyone that that gets involved with coaching they have somewhat of a playing career that obviously doesn't work out how they wanted it to because otherwise they would probably be playing rather than coaching but Uh um, it definitely gives you as a player it gives you an insight on on certainly golf course um, execution yep and uh, from an analytical side of things uh, in 2008 I had the opportunity to work with couple of guys on tour at a club that I also work at, the Bears Club, that's in Jupiter, Florida. And I started looking at different ways in which I could maybe get some um, ground against the competition and 
looking at the website on the PGA Tour, there's a lot of valuable information that a company called Shotlink provide, and they do a magnificent job of recording pretty much what these guys do on the golf course. And from that, you can see some deficiencies in some areas where certain players may need some help. And I just started started providing them with some training programs where they had to actually hit putts from a certain distance that maybe they were deficient in. Mm -hmm. And some of the guys knew what I was doing. Some of the guys did not. But what was an eye-opener for me at that raw stage of this journey was they were pretty much holding the amount that they made on tour, which then led me to start to pursue it even more. I see. But but can you can you can you help us understand that trans you're kind of you're you're kind of waving over a, a moment that apparently a lot of other golf coaches d- didn't act the same way you did, which was you saw this data and thought, well, I can use it. And this yeah, was a time I, when people weren't using data in golf, and it's it's a little countercultural. And you were brought up in the game, and you were brought up as a player it could have been easy to dismiss that or at least not be an innovator with it. Yeah, I think that I, I think that there's a big difference between a golf instructor and a golf coach. A golf instructor tends to just, I, I don't want to say the word pigeonhole, but they tend to just focus on the golf swing. Whereas as a golf coach, you're looking at it from more a holistic point of view where you're trying to, you're trying to look at every element that, that an athlete has at the chosen sport and make sure that you can provide... Um, a pathway of success with every single one of those elements. So, so Darren, can I but, stop you for a second just to make sure we understand what you're, you're not just, it's not just semantics here. A golf instructor might be someone who's at a club given a, given lessons on the range. A golf coach yeah. is someone who's actually working with the player over years, possibly. Is this the distinction you're drawing? Years and also you're trying to guide them in a certain direction with regards to the, how they play on the course, strategy, um, okay. analytics with their statistical data, practice plans, so on and okay. so forth. Got it, got it. And and of course, we use that term coach in that way. You might might be in gymnastics or swimming or whatever, running. These guys, these these competitors often have a coach that work with them in that way. Practice regime is a great example. Yes, exactly, yes. Okay, okay. so because you had that role, kind of a broader purview with the player, you thought there was greater scope to bring in data. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I looked at it as in, I, you can go and watch these guys play at tournaments, but really, if you're actually looking at the hard facts of what they're actually capable of doing or not doing, you're really getting a, a good look at their MRI of what they produce when they go out and play. Do other coaches look at I mean, just what you said, I would think there are lots of coaches who would, would kind of scoff at you or think, well, come on, you, you can't just, aren't you supposed to just be able to stand on the side with your arms crossed and observe the swing and say, oh, the guy's got it wrong. He's like opening his hips, you know, that kind of thing. Isn't that, isn't that the tradition? If you have to lean on data, doesn't that mean you don't see as well as some of these other guys? Um, <clears throat> you, have to, you, you have to do that as well. I think that's, again, the, the difference between an instructor and a golf coach. I do all of the swing stuff as well. Um, I, I don't fold my arms and just watch them and just say you've either got it or you haven't but <laughs> I, I, I do all the swing stuff as well as all the other bits and pieces that I feel are yeah. necessary for, for someone to improve you know that I'm completely sympathetic Darren so for, for our, I sat there an NBA game the other day watching pretty closely in, in person for the first time in a while and realized you know I kind of think I know what's going on here but if you gave me some data I would have a much better understanding of what's going on but I'm just the rank amateur observer on the side you know the guys who the guys who truly know the game do it both ways the yeah. challenge in this world in this day and age of data is that plenty of guys who brought up who were brought up without data think it's lame to lean on data uh, they think you should be able to just see it with their eyes certainly that's a tradition in 
in football. Yeah. And baseball. I mean, I guess the proof of principle is whether or not the, that that kind of analytical side has provided some kind of arbitrage opportunity or some kind of insight beyond which you can see with your yeah, eyes, right? right. Like, you is, is there like exactly. kind of a money ball moment for golf analytics? Can you maybe you give us an example of that? Can you give us an example of, of, of having worked with some player using data that reveals something that you might not have seen or he wouldn't have seen or she without the data? Um, yeah, um, we have a basic, the, the, there's, there's all different categories of, of, um, stats on the PGA Tour. Obviously they've broken down into long game, short game, putting and driving, but one of the putting areas would be specifically a putt from four to eight feet. Mm -hmm. And we have a, a certain test that we put T pegs out and they're, they're specifically from four to eight feet away from the hole and. Uh, there's 20 putts, and if they make a certain amount, that will give them a percentage of make, and then that has a strokes gain value that you know, the, Mark Brody has come up with so greatly in the last three or four years, and, and we can give them a value on that. Now, mm -hmm. when you've got a player that's at 63% on the PGA Tour, they are, they are probably going to achieve 68% on the putting green at home in Jupiter, Florida as well, and that's what I saw. Okay. So as soon as you see that that's what they're capable of doing, then you've got to make sure that they improve that in training before you can expect that to happen on the golf course. Mm -hmm. And that, that was the big eye-opener to me, is these guys do what they do. That's, that's how they make up their score. It, it is interesting but, and a little surprising. Many people would think either that you can tell a story both ways. You can say under pressure, they won't perform as well, or you can say under pressure, they'll bring more focus and perform better. And what you're finding is they actually do kind of on the putting green what they do on the course in competition. As long as you provide the environment that you make it count. So, yes, as soon as you apply a score to it and say, okay, you need to make X amount from this distance, and that, that provides... That provides the environment that you would look to train in because you're trying to train as close to the actual event as possible. And I think that runs true for most sports. If you hear, if you hear other extremely esteemed coaches as, such as Bill Belichick, he would, he would relish the fact that there were guys in his team that were trying to simulate practice as hard as the actual game. Mm -hmm. So, Darren, this is Eric Bradlow. I want to ask you a question since I, I love the sport of golf. I love watching golf. I sometimes play golf not as, not as well as I like watching it. Um, mm -hmm. How much variation is there in paths to success? You know, we all stare at a guy like Jim Furyk and look at his swing, and, you know, mm -hmm. he's been very successful. Um, how important is consistency? Like, at least Jim Furyk does the same thing every time versus there's kind of an ideal way to swing a golf club. So I think this is another area here, Eric, where you could, you could look at this and say this is why the numbers side of this is so important. Everyone looks at Jim Furyk's swing and makes an emotional decision based on how aesthetically it might be not the same as everyone else um, that's out there. However, if you looked at his numbers, he's extremely efficient. I mean, pound for pound, Jim Furyk might be the best player on tour for the last 10 years. And I think that based on how far he hits it and... and um, the distances that he has into the hole for, for, with his approach shots and what club he has to hit from those approach shots and mm. how good his proximity to the hole is from those distances, it's hard to argue against that he might be pound for pound one of the best players on the PGA Tour for the last 10 to 15, maybe 20 years. Mm -hmm. So that's an argument it, for the consistency. 
I'm sorry? That's an argument for the consistency. It kind of doesn't matter what you do as long as you're able to do it re reliably. Yeah, if you can keep doing that. And we've just tried to make sure that every shot that these guys hit has a value. And when it goes a certain distance away from the hole, that has a value to their stroke average. So if you've got someone that's extremely efficient of hitting it, they may not be long off the tee, but they're very accurate off the tee. That has a value to their stroke average. How how close they hit it to the hole has a value against their stroke average and you, so on. It you, has like a, a ripple effect because every player has got a very different way of producing 68. And yeah, some it, guys do it off the tee and some guys do it closer to the green. And, you know, g given that we've all agreed that consistency is obviously an outcome that you'd want to you'd want to have. There, and and you've just acknowledged that there's sort of there is a pretty tremendous variance in sort of what what golf swings look like. There must be some. I mean, part of your 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 task must be identifying which types of golf uh, swings are you know easier to consistently reproduce, right? So that that might be you know somebody. It's it's great that Jim Furyk can do what he does, or it's great that historically Chi Chi Rodriguez did what his swing, but like that that can't be a swing that is probably as easy for your for a typical golfer to replicate over and over again. So we're well, you, you give them the information that specifies what they are good at with a certain swing swing f fingerprint, for example. So if you've got someone that is, has a, a certain swing shape that draws the ball or puts a right to left shape on the golf ball you're going to find that the pins that are on the left side of the green are more accessible from a proximity to the whole point of view than the pins on the right and then you've got to give that player a strategy of when you're shooting for pins on the right you need to look this far away from the hole and not make bogeys and when the pins are on the right you can expect m more chances from from, from that distance because you've hit it closer. So we're talking to Darren May. Darren is the founder and head coach of Every Ball Counts. He's a British PGA member and works with the Bears Club down in Jupiter, Florida. That's uh, Jack Nicholas's club, of course. He's a director of instruction down there. Uh, Darren, what, what, what you're saying, we're, try, we're so stuck in this instructor model of golf where it's all about the swing. You're really, you keep on saying, you know, basically we're taking a different approach. Of course we can talk swing, but what you're uniquely adding is talking about basically understanding the the consequence of every shot and therefore strategizing appropriately. And so it, you you can just almost take a swing as a given and say, okay, this is the way you play. That means you've got to acknowledge these are the places you need to be. And one of the things I'm hearing from you, which is really cool, is that because you can value every swing and the, and the precise outcome of every swing, you can give people feedback shot-by-shot shot basis on whether they're adding value to their game or taking value away from their game. So that's very different from the old school, let's just you know pour a bucket of balls on the range and pound 100 swings out there without really knowing what the consequence is of everything that we're doing. Yeah, for sure. I think that <clears throat> um, I, I, I've had the privilege to stand on the range at the Bears Club. There's a, there's a lot of very, very good players that are at the Bears Club and there's a lot of guys that are maybe on fringe tours at the Bears Club as in web.com or trying to get on web.com and if you saw those guys hitting shots on the range you would several times you would have members come up and say so what's the difference between these guys because yeah, they look right. so good and the ball's traveling fantastically how is this guy top 20 in the world and this guy's really struggling to right. get out on tour well you're looking at the wrong end what you, you you should be looking at the end where the ball's finishing and what that's doing in relation to their target or where they're wow. aiming. So my goal is to give people information on their golf swings that's going to make them consistent and then try and work out are they potentially shooting what they should be shooting with that 
swing before I give them any more information on their golf swing because you're never really then rolling it out and uh, seeing what they're potentially able to shoot that way. So then it gets more into the strategy of what you've given them with that golf swing. And you're giving them a faster car and teaching them how to drive it around the racetrack. And then when they've got a good time around that racetrack, then you're maybe giving them a better car to drive by giving them more information with their swing uh, rather than just swing, 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 swing. Interesting. Fascinating idea that you, that we're, we're too focused on. We're focusing on the wrong end. Um, you, you, you take this even further by developing an algorithm of some sort that allows you to identify the weaknesses in the game. So this is really like, you don't even need to be watching the guy hit the ball. You're just looking at the data. Can you tell us about this algorithm and what kind of weaknesses that it, it identifies? Yeah, we had this developed with a young man that I was coaching at the Bears Club. He was a very, very good junior, had a very good AJGA career. He went to an Ivy League school and studied statistics there. And in his last year as the golf captain, um, I asked him whether if you could pour all the shot link data on the PGA Tour into a program, could it predict what the stroke average would be and what, the, what their greatest expected value of stroke average would be if it knew how far someone hit it and how close they hit it to the hole and what their percentage of make was that from that distance on the putting green. So as the program was being developed, it kind of learned what were the most valuable elements of creating score average on the PGA Tour was. So it's, it's 19 elements, and I'm not saying that that's the only 19 that are necessary, but for now that's the 19 that gain the most traction. So it gives us a minus or plus value against stroke average on the PGA Tour, and... We can do a 312-ball test that's pretty random, as in it's not all the balls from the same place. It's You'd hit a drive and then hit a shot from a certain distance, and we'd measure where those go, and then you'd walk over and maybe hit a couple of putts and a couple of chips. And then after those 312 balls, we put all of those measurements into the program, and it pretty much spits out what your stroke average, your expected stroke average would be, and then it shows us how that individual does it, which is so important for us is as i explained earlier everyone's got different ways of producing a number and unfortunately when you see 68 most people can only see the whole number but we're we've got pretty good now in measuring in fractions which is having the advantage of having a stopwatch that measures in tenths and hundredths rather than just whole seconds right can you tell us a little bit more about this 312 shot circuit what are you what outcomes are you measuring when you walk people through this circuit you're measuring driving distance and driving accuracy. Okay, so and you're, me you're measuring shots from inside 10 yards, chipping all the way through to 100 yards. So there's a, a short game element from inside 10 yards to wow. 100, and then yardage bands, as in 25 yard gaps from 100 yards to 250, and then putting from three feet four to eight, 10 to 15, and 15, uh, 20 to 25. Okay, but the, 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 the measurement is always basically distance from target in some way. Uh, Absolutely. Which is, yeah, so because this is, that's, that's the main theme, and um, that, our good friend Mark Brody will suggest that you know everything's based on how far you are away from the hole, and, yeah. and, and the, the, the closer you are, your expected value of reducing your score is going to get less. And I think you'll find... The Masters this weekend, the stroke average goes up because of the temperature that that weekend makes the golf course play longer and the wind makes the golf course play longer. So you're increasing the yardage of the golf course, which makes the stroke average go up. So, Darren, I'm just struck at how different this is from where technology in golf instruction has been 
for the last 10 or 15 years, which is very much on swing mechanics and, and exit velocity and spin rates and these kinds of things. And we tend to, even on this show, kind of reify that kind of process feedback. You're yeah. on the other end of this thing saying, no, 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 let's start with outcome. Let's emphasize outcome feedback. Let people know. And, and let's acknowledge that maybe there are different ways to get to equally good outcomes. This is, this yeah, is very different I'm, than what we I'm, usually hear here. I'm kind of looking at I'm kind of looking at each player as a business, and it, within that business they have departments, and those departments need to be profitable. And if they're not profitable, they need to stop losing. And if they're they're <laughs> they're, they're they're profitable, we've got to keep that going. And where are the biggest areas of creating profit within those departments? And those departments would be putting, short game, approach shots, and driving. So. I'm not saying that we don't do all the golf swing stuff because we yeah. really do. Yeah, the sure. coaches here are extremely skilled in, in, in all of the stuff that you just mentioned as in spin rates. And, but that, that has to have, there has to be a reason why we do that. And the mm -hmm. reason why we do that is based on what is that player capable of scoring. And if we change something at the other end as in golf swing, what, what ripple effect does that create that helps us stop a deficit, a, a, an area of loss in one of the departments of their game. Right. So, Darren, this is Eric Bradlow again. I want to ask you, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Are you saying that strokes gained is, in some sense, the ability to gain strokes is inversely related to the distance from the hole? In other words, the number of strokes gained on putting is likely to be less than, let's call it the short iron, than less than the mid iron, than less than driving. I just wanted to make sure that's the empirical fact that you found. Well, the, the, the strokes gain number, there's two different kind of... Uh, Mark, Mark has a strokes gain number based on the field, either for that week or for the whole season or wherever you want to cut into that time frame and look at who's leading or who's not leading in strokes gained to that field. Our strokes gained program is based on stroke average. So there's every, every single one of those 19 points that I mentioned, the putting from three feet or the the chipping and the pitching from 10 to 20 yards or the driving or the or the approach shots from 125 to 150 they have different values based on the the areas of the game on the PGA tour that have certain values against others so for example probably one of the most one of the most valuable distances on the PGA tour is from 150 to 175 that's no secret right um from short game it's 10 to 20 yards 10 to 20 yards chipping from the fairway. Putting, it's from 4 to 8 feet. And obviously driving distance is of a huge premium as long as the accuracy has a certain value as well. So, But, but, but those are the most valuable not because systematically those are what people tend not to do well. Those are just the most sort of common you know, bandwidths are, that you find yourself averages. in on a golf course. Yeah, right? Those are the, That's those are why the they're the most valuable. We would then tailor it depending on, say, for example, if you've got a tour average driver, their most, their most valuable yardage bands are what the average on tour needs to see the value in, which is from 150 to 200. However, if you've got someone that's one of the longest on tour, those yardage bands shift down right. more towards 100 to 150, and then, then you can start understanding the traction that Dustin Johnson's been getting recently because that's where he's had such a major improvement from 100 to 150 yards because... He has so many more shots from that distance. 
Mm-hmm. What's interesting also, uh, Darren, about that is, in some sense, he could be the 20 best, 25th best player from 100 to 150 yards, but he's shooting that shot a lot more often than the other guy. And so, in some sense, just for the fact there's 100 to 150 is easier than 150 to 175 gives him an mm-hmm. advantage. He's got he's got a like what we would call a double whammy advantage because first of all he's hitting it from a shorter yardage band and also he's hitting less club from that yardage band because he's longer from there as well. Right. So if you've got someone that's hitting an eight iron from one fifty and Dustin's hitting a pitching wedge, you're probably going to find his proximity to the hole from a pitching with a pitching wedge is going to be closer than someone's eight iron. Right. So so Darren, we're down to just a couple of minutes. Uh, it's it's fun to talk about the Dustin Johnsons of the world, and we spend some time at the top of the show talking about Sergio Garcia. What tips would you have for the for the amateur players who might want to learn from what you're doing out there? And if you wanted to redirect their training, what what would you point them toward? Well, this is what this has been really exciting for us, is because we're definitely a top down organization where we've started with PGA Tour, but we found that there's been a massive trickle-down effect based on this is very scalable. It's a, it's a word that we like to use. So every, every player should have a four to eight foot score. And that means that how, what, how good you are from four to eight feet has a massive influence on your score, regardless of whether you're playing on the PGA Tour or whether you're a 15 to 20 handicapper. And what we've been able to do is say, okay, if you want to reduce your stroke average on the PGA Tour by a whole shot, you're probably going to have to find seven areas of improvement on our oh, assessment. That's interesting. That's great. If you want to find one shot off your handicap for, a, for a, a, a handicap player from 15 to 20, you probably only need to find one thing on our assessment that can find a whole shot. Wow. And that's, that's extremely powerful to know. Right. Right. Darren, fantastic and fascinating talking to you, man. I really appreciate you joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. That was Darren May, founder and head coach of Every Ball Counts. He's a British PGA member, and he's director of instruction down at the Bears Club, Jack Nicholas's outfit in Jupiter, Florida. That has been the first half of our show. We still have another half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. We are at the halfway point, just coming out of an interview about golf down there in Florida. Darren May. His outfit, every ball counts. Going to change gears now. Different sport. I don't know. What do you guys think about talking a little football? Does that sound okay? Seems like the right move. Isn't there <laughs> something is coming it, up in football soon? Is it, is it yeah. ever the wrong move? Is no, it, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why we aren't talking about football more. <laughs> well, Considering you know, I still watch like a highlight a day, basically, well, from the Super Bowl. I, I figured what y'all would want to talk about is that Texas has their spring game this coming weekend. And we got to kind of well, gear of course, up for that. Of course. Tom Herman's first one. You know, all those I mean, future Patriots out there. <laughs> that's true. We have put a few guys with the Patriots. Well, to help us and to ground us, we are welcome. We're, gl- we're, we're delighted to welcome back to the show Brian Burke of ESPN. Brian, welcome to the show, man. 
Oh, thanks for having me back. We, we, we're delighted to have you. Always happy to have you. I think it might have been a couple of years since we've had you. But Brian is senior analyst um, with ESPN Analytics. Last time we talked to you, you were not with ESPN, man. You've changed You've changed yeah. uh, employment situations, which has uh, been fun to watch. So you were kind of doing your own thing for a good couple of years, and you created a name for yourself. And then ESPN, being the big, uh, the big guy on the block, decided that they wanted you in-house. How has that gone? It's great. Um, I uh, I really enjoy it. I, I I'm not in Bristol. I work uh, remotely from uh, my home outside DC. Right. Um, okay. I, I I get a lot of freedom. I've got a lot of resources. I work with some really sharp people. Uh, so yeah, before it was it was you know started as a hobby and really kind of got in on the ground floor with football analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure the the term even existed. Like. I started doing this in 2006, started a website just for fun as a hobby, and then um, the New York Times called said, hey, would you like to write for us, a few other places, and teams started to call, and uh, um, eventually just turned the, uh, you know, the night job into the day job. So right. It's been, it's been a fun ride. That's great. Well, it's, you know, you, you, you've always done great work, and then to see that coupled with the platform and the resources that ESPN offers has been fantastic, and I think it's good for the sport, good for the fans. Um, it's fun, yeah. We, we want to hear about some of those projects, but real quickly, want to. I think a lot of people may n- know you indirectly through the fourth down bot. So this has been this <laughs> this neat thing that has happened. So for a long time, there's this sense from the analytics community that football teams didn't go for it enough on fourth down, and then you partnered with the New York Times to create it's kind of the perfect vehicle for for proselytizing the need to go for it more often can you tell us a little bit about where the fourth down bot came from and who your partner is there at the times yeah sure um that's a fun project uh so um the the i I created a a fourth down calculator on my website where you just type in the you know the, the time score down distance and it tells you does all the analysis does Expected points, win probability analysis, and tells you, you know, based on these the, either model, what what the you know the bet, best out or best option would be, and uh, I built that because people were constantly asking me to, hey, analyze this one, analyze this one, and I it just right. became you know just <laughs> the same thing every day. So I said, here, I <laughs> built this little widget online, and uh, you can just do it yourself and leave me out of it. I'm getting sick of this fourth down stuff, <laughs> and. Um, uh then uh kevin queely from the new york times right uh he's now part of the upshot crew so like data Um, journalism he's always been uh uh, data visualization he's done a lot of really cool stuff with the times yeah exceptionally uh bright guy fun to work with um funny guy too and he he really kind of came up with uh, this persona of the fourth down body. Okay. So it has its own personality, has its own Twitter account, and, you know, it says funny things. And um, they just turned that, t- took that uh, calculator that, that I built, I made an API for it, and it, the fourth down bot, just every time there's a fourth down coming up in NFL, you know, any game, it sends a query to that API, it sends back a a result uh new york times turns that into a tweet and so before the ball is snapped on the fourth down you know you have an instant analysis (laughs) of you know all the pluses and minuses of of each option do you think it's made any difference you know romer writes this paper in whatever it was 2003 2004 
Um, people started talking about it. It just never makes a dent. I think if you look at data, it did actually make a dent for a little while, then it came back down to normal. Fourth down bots like new ammunition. This is Everyone sees this now. They talk about it. Now do you think it makes a difference? Are, are teams in the NFL have we, have we? Or Yeah, have we observed a systematic change in how fourth downs are yeah. handled by coaches? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. What I, I'm watching it very closely. People are always asking. So it's um, uh, it's definitely improving. There's a couple things going on. First of all, punters and kickers are getting better gradually. Shocking that. Yeah, shockingly so, right. Yeah, and, and consistently, significantly. And um, it's not stopping. And so what's, what's gradually happening is coaches are falling backwards into better decisions only because the conventional book is getting better. By no by no um, virtue of the coaches themselves, it's just that kickers and punters are getting so much better that those options are becoming relatively I- improving relative to going for it. I uh, see. So it's kind of it's very strange thing. On the also, there are a handful of coaches who really get this stuff. I've spoken with them. They I know they under they understand the ins and outs. They believe in it. They don't. They can't quite bring themselves to do you know. Every, you know, follow the numbers on every occasion in front of, you know. They're not ready to turn the game calling over to your bot. It's not quite that far. No, yeah. um, But you'll see John Harbaugh go for it on fourth and one on his own 20. And and he will. Love that guy. Love that organization. They're smart organization. The Ravens. Very much. So, So, Brian, this is Eric Broad. I wanted to ask you a related question. Has anyone ever asked you this? So, if you've got a method for fourth down, does that extend back down to third down now? So, for example, a strategic coach, if he knew that he was going to go for it on fourth and one, let's say, from their own 20, um, if they had third and one, then they might call a different play there. So have you done any work that's kind of said, you know, let's be a one-step-ahead thinker. If we know we're going to go for it on fourth down, maybe we should go for a more aggressive play on third down in short yardage. Right. So third down, so you should go for a less aggressive play on third down because it- it no longer becomes a, a make or break. And so that does a couple things. It, it sets you up for a much shorter fourth down. Uh, so if you, let's say, third and three in the NFL, it's typically, you know, they pass 90-some percent of the time. Well, if, you're, if you have a fourth down mindset, you are going to – you're much more likely to run the ball. Because I'm, I'm only looking for two yards here, you know, two right. and a half yards. Yeah, I was referring really to third. Happy. I said third and one, but yeah. I, I agree. Third and three yeah. versus third and one would be a big difference. Because I was thinking right. if it's third and one, why not go for a big that, chunk like of second, yards? It's, it's like, like second and one. Yeah, oh, right. you might as well. You have third, like, third and run is like a perfect play action pass if you're going to yeah. go for it on if fourth down on anyway. Fourth. But, That's Brian, great. you have. It sounds like you have kind of done that one step backward in thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with what you're saying. So, Typically now, like second and, and one is is like the big you know hey let's let's just chuck it down the field see what happens kind of play but yeah, you're absolutely right on that I was thinking the other way is kind of like hey third down is almost anything beyond third and two you know third and one is like a passing play now and that that carries a lot of risk right just look what happened to the Falcons right passing carries risk and uh, sacks penalty there's more penalties there's more chance of a turnover right. uh, of all kinds so um, yeah it becomes it becomes much more of a running down what's interesting uh, there's a spectrum right so Canadian you look at Canadian football they only have three downs so you're um, you know what 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 NFL football is to Canadian football you know whatever this kind of four down football 
would be it would be that next step where you'd have even less passing. Interesting. We're talking to Brian Burke. He is creator of his site, Advanced Football Analytics, back in the day, now working for ESPN Analytics. He's done some interesting work on the NFL draft. So a couple of articles recently caught our eye. One was your valuation of Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, what, what do we really believe his ability is as a quarterback? Because we've only watched him throw something like 90 passes. And then more recently, you wrote a, a piece on let's stack rank the best draft classes in NFL history which is an interesting exercise. So we're, you know, we're having to talk fourth down strategy or any nuance about football any month of the year, but we're not completely crazy because we have the NFL draft coming up in just a couple of weeks. And in fact, Philadelphia is hosting it. We're very proud of that. It's going to be fun. Um, what are you paying attention to with the NFL draft? And can you tell us about these articles? Both of them are really interesting to us. Yeah. Um, uh, the draft is great. I mean, that's how you build winning teams in the NFL and, uh, Fourth down stuff is fun and interesting, um, and it's kind of solvable. So we like to talk about it. Um, yeah, right. But yeah, there are some things in football that aren't quite as easy to to quantify. Um, as the basically everything say. else, essentially everything but yeah. fourth down. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, the coaches say it's not about the X's and O's, or, or you know these tactics or strategies. It's it's really about your players. It's about the Jims and Joes. And so that's what that's where the draft is, and I think that's the you know the player valuation, player prediction, you know that's the that's the next frontier. Uh, a lot of this game decision stuff has has been solved. So yeah, the draft is really interesting to me. Um, just worked on a lot of combine stuff. There's some inter- really interesting breakthroughs we've had there. Um, and, so one yeah, question so, a lot of folks are asking is what the Browns should do at the top of the draft. Browns perennially struggling they don't have a quarterback you seem to need a quarterback but the top guy in the draft by consensus is not a quarterback miles garrett edge rusher from a&m uh do you have a position do you have a position on what you think the browns should do also noting uh that they have a second pick in the first round which i think is like number 18 or somewhere like that i if it's 12 or 18 somewhere like that i would so the the browns have a very long-term mindset so observing what they're doing with with draft picks and their trades and, and personnel, they have a uh, long the you know the personnel directors there they have a long uh, term horizon. Uh, so they are not in any rush. Uh, yeah, there's no kind of sure bet quote unquote quarterback out there this year. Mm-hmm. So if if one of those guys happens to be uh, you know available to them, they could trade up into the bottom of the first round or trade down into the bottom of the first round and get, get somebody. Sure. Fine. You know, that's, that's fine. But since they have such a long-term horizon, they can, they can wait. They're not in any, any real hurry. So they're, they're kind of like the 76ers of the NFL right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, uh, uh, that is Moneyball. That is Moneyball in the NFL is the, is the draft pick. The draft pick right now in the NFL is what the, the high on-base average guy was to the Oakland A's uh, so, you know, 17 years ago. Does that mean you think they shouldn't take Miles Garrett either, that they should get out of that first pick altogether? Uh, well, they have like two picks in, in like every round this year. So right. um, if, if they have a great offer, I mean, it depends on the offer, yeah, because you can basically what happens is, and, and you know, Kate, Kate, I learned this from Cade, really. Um, you can trade down from the, you know, say the f- first round, get uh, get next year, 
get get a second round, an extra second round this year, and get another first round this uh, next year. So you, mm-hmm. or tra- maybe the best way to put it, I'm not doing a very good job explaining. I can trade away my second round pick this year for your first round pick next year. Right. That's basically right. how the the transactions work. So I, if you keep doing that, if you do that more than once, you start multiplying picks, and they, the the browser is kind of at the start of that process. So. But right. in order to sell that pick, you need a buyer, right? And so if, if there's sort of a consensus that, say, for example, um, that this is not a, this is a particularly weak draft class. But, um, but then, I, I, Shane agreed, but in this case, and we don't, I don't know what the overall assessment is, but yeah. what's true in this case is that there's kind of consensus on Miles Garrett being an right. unusually good prospect for an edge rusher, which is a highly valued position. So shy, yeah. having, shy having a consensus top quarterback, you've right. got kind of the next best thing. If you're looking for people to be hungry for your pick. Right. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah, just looking. Cleveland has numbers 1, 12, 33, and 52. So that's... Four of the first 52 ticks. Yeah. That's that's impressive. They could follow some other kind of, like, uh, you know, a pattern, um, you know, roadmap. So I think uh, I'm, I'm a Baltimore guy. And ironically, you know, Cleveland came to Baltimore, drafted Ray Lewis, was there, you know, in the first round in 1996 in their first draft? Wow! Built built a, this un, just unbelievable defense. Right. Um, right. And they didn't even have a quarterback, and <laughs> they won a Super Bowl in 2000. And threatened for years and years. Yeah. Um, so you can, if they could just put all of their chips in on defense, let's say, and defense is relatively. Uh, kind of sure bet and less risky in terms of you know you can assess athleticism a little bit better on defensive side of the ball than you can on the offensive side of the ball and so you have a little bit more predictive accuracy on who's going to turn out right nice so, nice emphasis of yours on a little bit right because there's still this uncertainty and there have been plenty of edge rushers that seemed like you know sure things and oh, it, yeah. that didn't actually pan out so that, that and it feels Brian it feels like every year from from a distance in like November people are kind of cool about the draft. But then, as you get every week, you get closer to to draft day. People kind of forget that uncertainty story, and they get more and more convinced that this year, Miles Garrett, he's a sure thing, man, future Hall of Famer. But Brian, yeah. you had you had mentioned that you were doing some work with the combine. What what did you find? Because I've spent a number of years working with the Eagles, looking at combine data and its predictive value for likelihood of being an All Pro, likelihood of injury, likelihood of number you know predicting number of starts that someone would make. What have you guys been doing? You you had mentioned the combine data. I'm just interested to what you found. Yeah, uh, there's a um, uh, longstanding uh, kind of white whale aspect to the combine and you probably came across this where uh as a football analyst we've got these hard numbers on these athletes and pro football is is undoubtedly a highly athletic endeavor right so obviously the the faster stronger guy who can jump higher you know he should do better than the other the guy who can't is not as strong not as fast but when you when you crunch the numbers you have all you have these hard you know these hard numbers this hard data on all these prospects and you try to predict how their their careers will turn out in the NFL there's it's very very difficult to find any correlation and there have been paper after paper i mean people much smarter than me have tried to do this and they come come away with well maybe there's this you know very tiny correlation with you know running backs and 40 yard dash times things like that mhm yeah, I, I mean, I think it's almost human psychology that, you know, the 
if you can measure something precisely, that confers in our minds some kind of prediction. You, you know, pre- that, that that actually is going to be yeah. predictive of, of the outcome you're interested. Not, not only, yeah, by precise. I mean, yeah. they can take forty times down to you know yeah. the the hundredth decimal points. Like, of course, three point three two is four three two is much faster than four three eight. Sounds therefore. more science. It just sounds more scientific, <laughs> and therefore so, it must be more important. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, okay. So uh, a couple really cool things. Um, one is I figured out why that. It doesn't. We really don't see those correlations. And two, there is a way to get a correlation. There's a this young PhD student from Harvard uh, who wrote for the Harvard Sports Analytics Club. Mm-hmm. Um, go go Google. Bill, his name's Bill Lott, and he um, he was able to uh, discover some relatively um, moderate correlations uh, in terms. So he used a three-year approximate value, which is a, a career-level stat that Pro Football Reference uses. It's yep. fairly standard. Yep. Um, it's kind of like uh, uh, what what you and, and Richard Thaler did, Cade, with with, uh, with your big study. You know, it's like starts and game appearances and Pro Bowls and things like that. Right. And uh, he just used a, a different kind of regression technique, and he used, uh, instead of trying to predict the AV itself, he predicted, like, the rank AV rank, so first, second, third, kind of a percentile With, prediction. Within a, within a draft class? within a, uh, Not within a draft class, but with uh, in terms of their AV in, in, within position. Within position, and, okay. Uh, yeah, so o- over the whole data set. And okay. it works out really well. I, I got in touch with him. I was like, this is too good to be true. And uh, tried replicated it and um, did some different, different things with missing data. That's a big problem, too, because a lot of players don't do each event at the combine they do they're selectively and there's okay. another, there's another selection bias okay so, so brian are you are you going to just toy with us you're going to give us some details here is it, it it may be that he can't you can't share it maybe he's working with teams oh, or something no, but can no, you give no. us like what like what's an example of a you say moderate correlation just for the world that's a really big outcome in the nfl draft four yeah like, that's uh, that's huge yeah, in the nfl rank, combine yeah, like spearman rank goes for for the uh Okay. Statisticians out there, yeah. Okay, about so point four for each position uh, on average. So, can you give us an example? Like, what is going? What are the inputs into that thing? Yeah. So just the, just the combine numbers. So height, weight. Uh, so the same input. Then, so the same inputs everyone else is using, but he's he's yeah. he's building them, modeling them in such a way, doing something with the missing data or whatever that allow it to render more signal. Really? Yeah. I really go, go read his. It's very well written and presented. Great graphs. It's just Google something like the combine actually matters, okay. something like that. And it's like three parts. Read the second part. That's where all the meat is. And <laughs> okay. uh, recommended for all of the, the you know the analytics fans out there. You'll enjoy it. Um, and, and pretty much across positions, he couldn't. Uh, the one position he didn't get was wide receivers, um, which yeah. is ironic because you'd think, well, speed is, is everything for wide receivers. Um, no, that's that's did, what people get wrong, right? They think it's everything. It turns out it's not so much everything, but it's, it's measurable so precisely. Yeah. Uh, so very skill based. We're talking to Brian Burke. He is senior analyst at ESPN. He's at the very cutting edge on football analytics and has been for over ten years now. Brian, you've got a recent article on ESPN about ranking the best draft classes. You, you, um, because the classes used to be bigger, you tend to think that the best classes yeah. were like the nineteen seventy-five Cowboys and seventy-one Steelers. These kind of classes, which is cool, because we're all kids of the seventies here, and, and pull for those teams are against them. In the case of the Steelers, um, wh- what do you think about recent classes? So now that we're in the seven-round era, 
Are there any classes that's, that jump out to you? And what do you learn from this exercise? What do you learn and what advice would you have to teams or even fans watching their teams about the draft? Uh, it, it's incredibly random. Um, it, what was interesting to me is that you had teams that had, like, the, in terms of worst classes, you had there were years draft classes for teams that had, like, no value. For, they, they didn't get anybody wow. turned into a starter. Those days tend to be over. They... they, they all the teams now respect the draft. Like there were the Redskins in the seventies who didn't, like didn't even care about the draft. They were like, "This is stupid. What? We're not going to waste our time with this." Wow. And, and they They're, and that ownership with the Redskins has come so far since. Then. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they've only, yeah, they've only come so far. Always a leading edge organization, those Redskins. And they do their diligence too. I mean, they just put so much more resources into right. scouting and, and finding. So yeah, the, these 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 draft classes where there was just almost zero value. Uh, are kind of a thing of the past, you know, maybe in the eighties was the last time we saw things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of modern classes, they're, uh, like the 2004 Cardinals with Larry Fitzgerald. They're the way it depends on how you score this. Like, you know, the, we're looking at total career numbers. We're looking at only the number of the value that's provided to the, the drafting team. The itself. Drafting team. Mm-hmm. So if he goes somewhere, you know, a player goes somewhere else, um, then, uh, then it does that value doesn't. So it, it, it's, dependent on how you score that right um, yeah because i mean uh, I, it's presumably like the kind of player value the the i would assume that kind of the perform the the player value is a very highly skewed distribution you have some players that end up contributing a tremendous amount like the larry fitzgeralds of the world and then you've got a whole bunch of zeros so i assume you don't in in the context of that really skewed kind of distribution of value you it's it's hard to even know what how to how to measure a team's performance, right? Do you like take their average value and incorporate all those like washouts or 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 do you sort of just sort of say like, oh, you know, getting a what, top player that's therefore a successful growth? Yeah, what's the exchange rate between yeah. Larry, Larry Fitzgerald and an average starter? Yeah. Because you'd like a bunch of average starters in a draft, but right. I don't I don't know the exchange rate. There. But that's what you I mean, let me just say, Brian, I'd love to hear your thoughts. This is exactly what we did at the Eagles. So we would compute the exceedance value by position and the way we would do it is we would compute how its contributions to win total or expected number of wins and so you could in theory compute that for every player drafted compared to the average at that position and then you know add it up and so what kind of thoughts have you had about this uh just my thoughts in general would be if you do an analysis like that you'd want to have some kind of replacement level and just like they do in baseball so you're you're um it depends on who your, you know, who, who your next, what your next best option is. Your next best alternative is at each one of those positions, and in some cases that may be, you know, a uh, undrafted free agent off the street making, you know, league minimum. So there's a minimum salary and there's a minimum performance level that you would expect. So it's it's value and and marginal cost above that 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 should drive your decisions. The other thing is that there's a salary cap that is affecting affecting things so there is a there's an optimization uh, aspect to the problem where you want to fit as much talent on your roster as possible totally you know, subject to some this constraint of the salary cap so just like the um as we call it you know the, the massey uh failure um you know concept you you want to kind of optimize that that surplus value you get from from those picks the only the extra wrinkle i would say is that you have um, this uh, I, I think of it in terms of gladiators and bricklayers. So in, in NFL football, 
you, you, these guys are gladiators. They're not bricklayers. I can't. If you have bricklayers, I can. You have one guy who's a really good bricklayer. He he lays like ten bricks a minute, and I can replace him. I can fire that guy and replace him with two guys that each do five bricks a minute and pay them half as much, and I'm, and I'm just as as good off. I can't do that with let's say a, a quarterback. I can't. Uh, fire Tom Brady, replace him with two quarterbacks that are half as good as he is because I'm constrained. So I want to squeeze as much value right. to one individual as I can. Um, so there's, and, and so what, what matters in terms of football isn't that Tom Brady is really, really good. What matters is that Tom Brady is better than your quarterback. And so it's, it's, there's this relative value to it. Right. And it really, it, next wrinkle. yeah, it is. It really counts. And you've been using the quarterback as an example. And it's a, and it's a very relevant one because bringing your two most recently mentioned concepts together, I mean, the replacement value of a quarterback, the replacement level quarterback in the NFL is just really not good. Mm-hmm. And right. so your, al- your alternatives aren't just aren't great in it. And it, it ratchets up the value of a draft pick for a quarterback, especially, and this is something I think we we missed. Um, we 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 might have missed in our analysis that if you find a good quarterback, you might keep him for twelve or fourteen years, and all the values we ran in our analysis were basically five year windows, which are probably not bad for most positions. But if guys, when you, when teams find a good quarterback, they don't let him go, and they might play forever. Hell, Brady's forty years old, and he still has seemingly a few good years in front of him. So, if you can lock into a guy at that valuable position for that long a period of time, and replacement level is so bad, that's a lot of value. But well, here's the other thing with quarterback is the, their market value. We don't even know what their real market value. I think Aaron Rodgers, right? A true market value would be. Sixty million dollars a year. Yeah, so they're paying and, twenty, twenty-seven, or whatever, and right. he might be worth twice that. Absolutely, mm-hmm. but it, realistically, yeah. But he he will take half of that, and because t- taking sixty would would handicap the team so badly under right. the salary cap. And if you're so, the Patriots, you can just give them a free office building next door, and then you know you make up for it in other ways. Well, there's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look at the NBA. That that's the the cap and the maxes and all these limits and you know price controls basically is what they are it just it, it creates all these contortions and that, unintended that, effects and things like that and the, and those are all wrinkles yeah. that that devious diabolical minds could exploit and, and more power to them i think they're not breaking the law necessarily so we we only got a couple of minutes for you but speaking of the patriots jimmy garoppolo some people have talked about, here's something that Brown should do, trade for a kind of a known commodity. You did a really neat piece on Garoppolo saying, how much do we really understand about him? And we've only got a couple of minutes, Brian, so I'm sorry to do it to you, but can you tell the readers or the listeners for a second like how you thought about that and what you took away from it? Yeah, I've was I was I've been trying to get better with Bayesian analysis, Bayesian regressions and things like that. And so when I, when I learn something new, I'm always looking for, for the nail, you know, for my brand-new hammer, my shiny new hammer. <laughs> yeah, right. And so Garoppolo is my nail. And he, so, you know, Bayesian analysis works where you have kind of this prior distribution of what you would expect. And so a brand-new quarterback in the league, you really don't know what to expect from him. He could be really good, really bad, but he's probably somewhere in the middle. So you have this kind of normal or normal-ish distribution of, of how good this player could be. In this case, I use yards per attempt, which is a, a very right. uh, standard, very predictive kind of measure of how good a uh, quarterback is. Yep. And so I started with that, just this unknown, and then he throws, you know, a quarterback throws one pass, and now we have a tiny bit more information on him, and he throws another pass, and we have slightly more information. And so the, our estimate 
it gets revised slightly every time he throws a pass based on how successful that pass was. And that, that normal distribution starts to change. So the, the mean starts to shift away from the prior mean and towards our observed mean. And our confidence level in that estimate starts to improve as well. And, and so the, the shape of this normal distribution becomes narrower and narrower the more and more information we have. So, Brian, well, real quickly, let me just tell you, because you don't get the visuals, your Bayesian co-hosts here are just nodding and beaming. Oh, my goodness. That, uh, this is a tremendous I, I, I could not have explained <laughs> and, the Bayesian approach better. And he does it for a living. So we think, radio, yeah, we, even, think, yeah. we think that all of life should be reasoned about in this way, so we love what you're doing. So you apply this approach to Garoppolo. He's thrown like 93 passes or some absurdly small sample. Yeah. And so what conclusion do you reach? Yeah, basically it, it's very, very little information. It's all, almost almost nothing. And so it, you could do the same thing. Just look at you know, qu- quarterbacks after their you know, 63rd pass or something like that and look at where their average was. And you know, Peyton Manning or Tom Brady, and it might not have been very good or very bad, or it, it really is no inf- almost no information. It's light. It's good. It tells us um, you know, a little bit. But nothing to kind of bet your franchise on. So that, on the uh, other hand, please, the, please your go ahead. Alternative yeah, is a is a first round pick, which is even slightly more uncertain. So now the benefit of the first round pick is that you don't have to pay him market value. Right. Yeah. So uh, if you trade for Garoppolo, you're probably going to pay him. He's not yet on a second contract, but he probably gets some kind of update when you trade, or you get. He has one more year on one... his contract, which is why a lot of people are thinking, "What are the Patriots going to do?" Because he can just walk in a year anyway. Okay, so you get one year of all this surplus value at this kind of uh, rent control draft the rookie contract, um, as opposed to if you draft Mitch Trubisky, you get four years of rent control surplus, whatever it might be. So equal uncertainty, but much more of a bargain, I suppose, for Trubisky. Brian, yeah. we, we have to jump away. We could talk to, with you for the rest of the show, I'm sure. Um, we know you have more important things to do. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, come back and talk to us. That was Brian Burke, senior analyst at ESPN, creator of Advanced Football Analytics, one of the leading football analytics guys out there. Um, you can follow him. He's got a, he's got an active Twitter account. If you're if you're following the 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 fourth down bot, you're already following him in a way. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Daniel Bruno, sound engineer on the board today, giving credit to producer Matt Johnson for that show, for that song, bringing us back from the break, rolling into the last quarter of the show. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Just off the phone with ESPN's Brian Burke. Always fun to talk to Brian. Does fantastic work on football analytics. You can follow him in many different ways. We have open lines for the next half hour. Going to kick around the world of sports, find out. What else these guys have been paying attention to? You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, especially if you're listening one of those times that we're replayed. Five times over the next week will be replayed. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern on Wednesday, you're not listening live, you can still reach us. Email businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Oh, by the way, we're also tweeting these days, a little bit anyway. Got an account off the ground. You can follow us the the handle is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. I've been tweeting using at WMoneyball. 
Is that right? Yes, I All have. Right, Instead so, of just as well as I add on our general one at Biz Radio One Eleven. Right. So you can follow us in a few different ways. We're we're slowly getting up with the social media thing. We've only been doing this for three years. I guess it's time for us to to use some of these levers at our disposal. We need an Instagram account. <laughs> do we? Do we? That's. I mean, that's. I, <laughs> can it I just don't know. be? Can it just be Shane Jensen pictures? Yeah, that's the glory right. of the Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I would, it, would, it, would, it would blow up, trust me. Yeah, well, we should trust that hypothesis. Face Shane. made for radio. <laughs> we like your Canadian accent on radio. Speaking of Canadians, come on, do you have anything for us? It's, if it's basketball playoff mm-hmm. season, that means it's also oh, it's hockey, hockey playoff playoff season. playoffs start yeah. tonight, basically. It's it's exciting times. And I, I, I mean, we could go through individual matchups if we wanted to, but I think I, it's worth noting just on the Canadian theme that there are – Five of the seven Canadian teams made the playoffs this year. So didn't none make it last year? Yes, and I kind of want to talk year? about that. You know, so so I mean, obviously, there's that that kind of. I mean, these teams are not. It's not like hockey teams completely overhaul in one season, right? So the fact that you can go from basically zero out of seven teams in the playoffs to five out of seven teams in the playoffs does show a little bit of the kind of randomness of who <laughs> makes totally. the playoffs. And that's the main hockey, thing that should right? jump out to you for sure. Yeah. So no, I mean, and, and so I I think. I mean, that to a certain extent suggests, you know, the value of the regular season. Well, what I'm looking at, what I'm what I'm looking at here is interesting. I don't want to call it parity in some sense, but obviously there's wins, losses, and Mm -hmm. overtime wins, I guess, in hockey. But Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the matchups just to show you how much parity. The Rangers and Canadians are playing each other. The Rangers had 48 wins. The Canadians 47. The Bruins and Senators are playing each other. The Bruins had 44 wins. The Senators had 44 wins. The Blue Jackets and Penguins are playing each other. They both had exactly 50 wins. The Blues and the Wild are playing each other. The Blues had 46 wins. The Wild had 49. The Sharks and the Oilers are playing each other. One had 46. One had 47. Right. So this is crazy. No, I'm just saying, you look at the compression. I know there was one team this year. The top to bottom. I mean, you know... Right. So there's one there's one match, let's just name it. One yeah. match that the Caps and the Leafs are playing and the Caps had fifty five wins and, and the Leafs had forty. And forty. So big yeah. gap there, but everyone and Blackhawks is... fifty, Predators forty one. Okay. But and then Flames Ducks forty five, forty six. But I'm saying So those eight sense... one matchups are disparate, but everything from everything seven else, two yeah. on is that's right. That's remarkable. Do what do we what do we think the state of the game is in terms of analytics in hockey? Well, I, I think it's um it's I mean, it's probably. I think it's going to be the next sort of frontier after basketball, right? I think a lot of the a lot of the challenges historically of of, of all the kind of you know sort of ba- ba- both basketball, hockey, and soccer. I kind of consider in in this category of of their their relatively fast paced, continuous you know action occurring on a continuous surface. Um, I think there's there's so player motion motion tracking is motion, a real so motion tracking is 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 essentially the key. To really kind of coming up with well, player, measures that are predictable. Player speed has been something that you see a lot more when watching right. games now. They'll actually have live like player speed tracking during the actual telecast, which do, is something do, I've noticed. Do they help you calibrate for that, or do you just have to watch a bunch in order to get calibrated? Because I would have no idea if you told me a guy was moving 25 miles you an can, hour, whether well, that's fast or slow. Well, so I mean, you, that, you can watch. Fast. You can, uh, not Right. I mean, that, certainly you're not going to be able to judge that. But, you, I mean, just like in basketball, when, when somebody drives lane you're like oh my goodness he just really ran by those people in hockey too uh, you know you see Connor mcdavid out there or something and he just goes through people you're like that guy's fast no but okay. Shane's, so you, but you Shane's have bring that. up something's really interesting like you don't really i mean you sort of see it in baseball like you see here's this person's batting average and they'll say you know here's where the person is in the league or yeah. compared to their historical but 
wouldn't it be great if on the telecast they had, you know, the person's going 17 miles an hour. And by the way, for all Fords in the league, <laughs> yeah. the average speed is 14.6. And yeah, this so, person's in the, this is the second fastest of 132 players yeah, we've tracked. That would yeah, be that's great. You want to do that like instantaneously through a visual. The challenge, yes, yeah. that's what I mean. And, but the challenge, yeah, yeah. okay, so yes, great, but, and they do this in soccer. You know, I mean, I remember watching a classical game even like two or three years ago where they're like, oh, my goodness, Real Madrid is the players on average are running like, you know, whatever it is, 12 miles per hour. And, you know, the the Barcelona players are only running 10 miles per hour. And you get kind of excited about that nice sort of quantitative measure. But then you lose excitement when you realize it correlates with no it does not have any (laughs) correlation with the outcome you're interested, which is the chance they win the game. And so this returns back to my point of where hockey is as a sport analytics wise. The reason, you know, you know, you can measure all this sort of, you know, in-game behavior, use the most sophisticated motion tracking. But it's hard to come up with measures, you know, that are correlated with the actual outcome. Well, in basketball, it's the easiest yeah. because you actually observe a lot of outcomes. There's a ton of scoring in basketball. Yeah. But how about but how about in hockey? Yeah. It's less easy. It's like soccer in that way. Well, it, it will, and that you can literally order the sports in terms of difficulty. Yeah. Basketball is the easiest because you got absolute tons of scoring. Yeah. Hockey's kind of this intermediary where there's some amount of scoring. Soccer is obviously the hardest because there's like one yeah. goal Good. a game. Yeah. So, so trying to cut like so, so much of the actual sort of outcome is latent in soccer, right? And it's a little less latent and more observed in hockey, and it's almost completely observed in basketball. I was, and that's why the sports. That's why we're going from basketball to hockey in terms of sophistication. I just want to okay. ask your opinion because we talked about this when we were talking to um, Brian about, you know, maybe speed matters, maybe it doesn't matter. I've always thought, you know, wh- so why would you draft, you know, you guys remember we're all roughly the same age, Ronaldo Nehemiah. So why would you draft him? Oh we know my. he can't really wow. catch the ball. Well, I'll tell you why. Who? <laughs> The track star, Ronaldo <laughs> Nehemiah, that was drafted for the 49ers. Are, right? Do you remember when that happened? You don't remember. So no. the 49ers still- drafted. He was still an active track athlete. He was the 110-meter hurdle champion. And the 49ers drafted him. It turned out he played for probably four or five seasons for the 49ers, had bad hands. But here's my translation. So by the way, Bob Hayes in the 70s Bob was, Hayes the track, was another was the track athlete. Cow- and he worked out much better. And much, he- much, much better. But here was my question for you, Shane. So we say speed doesn't correlate maybe that much, and you're right, it doesn't. However, this is the argument that's always given. Let's imagine the Eagles now, sorry, the Buccaneers, my team, now have Deshaun Jackson. Now, w- whether he's good or not, he says, he claims, he was measured, he can still run a four three five forty. All right, so now he has to be double teamed. So now all of a sudden... Your tight end looks better. Now, all of a sudden, your running back point. has more room to run. Mm-hmm. So could the same thing be true in hockey where, you're right, you know, John Smith is not, he's fast, but you know what, doesn't put a ton of numbers up there. But I'm going to tell you something, those defensemen better pinch John Smith because if John Smith is skating on his own against other players, he's going to blow through them and he's going to score. So now, all of a sudden, the weak side person is a more effective. Now, I agree, that's a much harder analytic story to tell, but isn't aren't we hoping, aren't the three of us hoping that that's the area we're moving to, which yeah. is kind of the value of a player beyond his or her sole metrics? Yeah, and I, and I think that's right, but I think you're exactly right, and I think, but that to a certain extent, that's what... Um, you know that's and that's what we need some more sophisticated player tracking to do because in hockey what what does speed really buy you well you know it 
I guess it applies, you know, in the easiest case, it, it buys you the ability to just blow through players. But it also you create more space for both yourself and your teammates mm-hmm. on the playing surface. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need very sophisticated kind of motion tracking to actually quantify. Similarly in soccer, I mean, I don't know a ton about soccer, but when I've talked to soccer people and asked them what they would like to be able to measure, it's this idea of like how much space does I, a particular player create around them yep. and for the players that they're trying to get the ball to. Mm-hmm. And that, that you know, that's why we're still kind of not quite there yet with, I think, hockey and soccer is that we're just on the edge of being able to kind of measure things like the amount of space you create on the field. So one last thing about hockey uh, that that I think does impede the proliferation of analytics some um, is the culture is more like football than it is like it's basketball. It's a very traditional so kind of culture, in, yeah. In terms of the game, it matches basketball, and we've mm-hmm. seen basketball. Basketball is left over baseball in terms of analytics sophistication. Um, one of the reasons football lags behind, one, it's harder to do with 22 guys on the field as opposed to 10 Absolutely. and all these interactions. But also the culture kind of keeps it back because it's a little more conservative. Hockey is much more, I'm told, that it's much more like football than mm-hmm. it is than basketball. And that's that going to make it a little bit slower. Speaking of these sports, though, there's one we haven't talked about today, and that's baseball. So we're we're off the we're we're out of the blocks. Yeah, with yep. the baseball season, we're what like two and a half weeks in or something like that. What are you seeing right now that that has is interesting? Well, uh, for some reason, something that caught my eye in sports in baseball was just because the Phillies are playing the Mets, and there's a player on the Mets who's off. I'll tell you who it is in a second. Is off to a horrific start. And then it started to make me think statistically, when do you start to get a little bit concerned about a player, about the potentially horrific start they're off to? Mm -hmm. So, for example, Jose Reyes, a guy who was at one point an all-star, you guys may remember was out of baseball, kind of came back in, he's now back on the Mets. He's batting 60, .60 right now. So he's two for his first 33. Oh, my. Okay. And so you start to think to yourself, and the Mets won, I think, 14-4 to against the Phillies yesterday. He raised his average. He was one for six. By the way, I was planning on, <laughs> when I spoke, when I created my notes last night, he was batting .037. He raised it to .06, just to let you know. Um, but when do you get to a point where you start, you know, we're, let's use Brian's wonderful Bayesian description. We've got Jose Reyes's career average. Let's say we use that as a prior for him. Yeah. We could say players like him. He's got a distribution around Jose Reyes has never been that great a hitter, but let's say around 250. The guy's batting 60 after 33 plate appearances. So now we have to downgrade him below even his historic average to a certain yeah. point. When do you get to a point early in a season, whether it's with a batting average, let's say a team starts 6 and 14, but they were let's say the Red Sox are not, but let's pretend they started 6 and 14 despite the predictions of 90 wins yeah. or something. When do you get to a point in a baseball season where you start to have to severely adjust from whatever prior you was on. That that's what caught my well, eye. Well, I mean, in sports. I mean, you're you're posing it as sort of like a discrete, like, oh, we're just gonna we're not gonna adjust, and we're gonna wait a certain amount of time, and now we're gonna severely adjust. I mean, I, it's a more continuous adjustment, right? I mean, that's the kind of. But eventually, the manager is gonna have to discreetly adjust and say, Jose Reyes right. is not getting it done. So, I mean, I guess the way I would do it is I have a prior going into the season on, based on Jose Reyes's last few years plus what age he's at, and so based on you know I have a prior in terms. of of like him being, say, a 240 hitter, 
All right. And then I observe, I start observing data outcome, you know, at bat by at bat. And I start that that slowly starts shifting. And I guess it once it reaches the point where he's below the kind of replacement I could I could, you know, the person I could replace him with, whoever the utility infielder is for the Mets. That's the point at which I start making that decision. Actually, we've never talked about this on Morton Moneyball. And what you just said, Shane, made me it's not that it's not true. It could be true or it could not be true. I'm interested, Caden, in your thoughts as well. We've never really talked about whether whether the degradation in someone's performance is, I don't remember us talking about it, whether it's a continuous thing or it happens all of a sudden. It's like, or in the stat terms, do you need a discrete jump model that says you were playing at level X and now all of a sudden you kind of just bottom out quickly? Or is it a I gradual have, have a, decline? Don't, don't you, I have, I just carry around a bias against these kind of threshold stories. I just assume everything's a lot more continuous than people think it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I mean, that's, and that's, I mean, and by injury, way, that's what Shane said, which could yeah. very well be true. I'm, yeah. I'm just interested because you, you know, there's the lore in football. You mentioned, Tom Brady earlier. Well, no forty-year-old, and when it goes in football, it goes fast. You hear well. people say, it, "Do we do we know anything oh about God. that?" No, no. Do K- K- you know that's what people say? They're saying, yeah. you know, no forty-year-old quarterback has ever. Well, how about a thirty-nine and a half-year-old quarterback? Has that been okay? You know, people have yeah. this presumption. I think we like to tell the lore of massive discrete jumps. Right. When the player loses it, the they cliff. lose. That's they right. fall that's off right. a cliff. The, the narrative is that people fall off the cliff. Right. I do th- tend to think of it as a more continuous thing. The the one obviously kind of discrete thing that can lead to like like the one thing that can obviously lead to a discrete jump in performance is injury right so so that's you know then you know if i'm if i'm a manager you know for the for the mets i have i am privy to more information than you know some us sitting here in the in the studio like if 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 jose is battling something you know over the last you know like coming into the season i know about that and i can kind of adjust my prediction either either down if I think it's going to be a, a substantial issue for the whole season, or up if I think it's just sort of a lingering thing. I mean, half the Red Sox apparently caught the bubonic plague the, for the first week of the season, and they were all down with the flu. And so you'd want to take that into account and not necessarily predict out for them for the entire season based on what they did in the first week. Yeah, nothing. I mean, nothing's. I hate to say it, but nothing's caught my eye to the degree that you know. When I looked at the standings last night, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the standings. No, no, I, are meaningless I know it's only they only point, played yeah. seven or eight games, but you know, I hate to say it. The Braves are at the bottom. No shot. I mean, it didn't take them long to sink to one and six or whatever they are. Mm-hmm. You know, the Mets and the Nationals are at the top. The AL East. You know, Toronto's off to a slow start, one and six. But all the rest of the teams, three and four, four and three, five yeah. and three. There's so kind of this take, big mass. Take the Jays. Take the Jays um, because they came in with high expectations. They obviously had a very good season last year. They're yep. relevant to you two guys, y'all are Yankees and Red Sox, and they're in your division, they start out one and six. You're good Bayesians. You look at that and go, eh, right? I mean, basically, you say that's there's really no signal. Yeah, in well, I, there isn't. I there isn't a lot of signal. Not definitely not in base. Not in seven games. But I, I, this is the math I always do when I when I go to these. Okay, so let's imagine the first goal is to get back to five hundred. So how many games? is it going to take to get them to get back to 500? So let's say they play extremely well over their next 20 games. Or let's say, let's that's about extremely well. Let's say they play 2-1, which is hard to do. 2-1 yeah, no, is extremely good. really, that's yeah. 108 and 54 yeah. for the whole season. So now let's imagine they go 13-7 and seven over that. So okay, by, so by the way, it's much easier to do that over 20 games than over the whole season. Much so easier to do it. We'll grant that's you why. that. We'll grant no, you no, that. that's why. But if they go 13-7 and seven over that period... They're back at 500. So now, though, they've played 28 games of the season, yeah. and they're at 500. So 
That to me, I'd say, is a best case scenario. Yeah. And they could get hotter than thirteen and seven. That's they could right. go seventeen and three, as far as we know. Yeah. But that's the way I start to think about it. How many games will it take to get back to five hundred at a reasonable? If you have a pretty yeah. hot pace, right. so that's why one and, and six. Yeah, I'm not and, worried and, about. And, but and, if they were two and twelve, yeah, and, all and, of a sudden you'd start to say because that's a great. That's a, at some point you dig yourself into a hole. Yeah, that's so right. That's what, what I'm referring part, to. Part of it is you're getting a signal on the quality of the team, but independent of that, yeah. you're digging a hole. That's, that's right. going to be right. harder and harder to get out of. Yeah. Right, because you kind of know. I hate to say it. There is some say, well, we don't know. No, here's what we know. Someone in the AL East, we can't predict which of the five teams it is. Someone's going to have 90-plus wins, I, I think. I don't know exactly who it's going to be. But in the realm of in 90. The rea- in the yeah. realm of 90. Yeah. So at some point, I mean, one and six is way too early. But at some point, you start to say, what are we going to have to play yeah. to get to 90? That's right. And, of course, now you know now it's at the moment it's whatever – 89 and you know 50 something or they can get to that they are 89 and 60 something they can get to that but if they're 2 and 12 then you have to say they got to play 600 plus ball right. for the rest of the season to get to 90 and then right. you start to say well 600 right. plus balls a 97 win team why would i think a 2 and 12 team is all of a sudden going to play yeah. at a 97 win pace for the rest of the season right. that's right so a, another question uh, on different on the different on different league and locally what about the phillies so a couple of things that are interesting to me about this team. One is they have, just this year, invested more heavily in analytics. So one of their owners steps up and says, we're actually going to change the way we do things around here, kind of belatedly moving off of the trajectory that kind of a slow, yep. uh, long downhill slide from their mid-2000s championship. So they've got an investment in analytics. They've got a, they've got a group there. When do we start seeing the benefits of that? How do you, what do you observe? That's the thing. It's real, slow real in baseball. Okay, so so there's kind of my question. The Phillies, if you look at fan graphs, the Phillies are projected to win seventy two games, so seventy two and ninety, which would you know put them out of the playoff conversation at the All Star break. Almost. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're a Phillies fan, how are you consuming this season? What are you well, looking for? I mean, I mean, I think if you're a Phillies fan, you're just really excited about this sort of. The, I mean. It, it, it would be great if they were actually a little bit more competitive, but you're really excited about this kind of youth movement, and and and, and you know what you're what you're kind of looking for is they ho- hopefully them kind of building building kind of almost like a cohort of people coming up through their organization. So, that, so Shane, you're going so that's that all sounds fine and good, mm-hmm. especially to me because I don't have to watch them every day. I can, right. I can kind of pull for them, and I can have a yeah, three year window. Right, that's right. But you're going to go to the game tonight. Yeah. So how do you take in how how will you enjoy the game tonight, given who, what you're going to be? Watching? Well, I mean, I, again, I'm going to channel Audi for a second here. There's beauty to the game, even if your team is getting shellacked, which okay. hopefully they're not. Hopefully the Phillies are not going to have the same kind of night that they had last night against the Mets. But, you know, you you can still kind of enjoy... The great thing about baseball is you can still enjoy individual performances even if the the team overall is not winning most of their games. Okay. So who's a player on the Phillies you are going to have an eye on tonight because you think you might give one of those individual performances? Are there players you're especially excited about, even on a 72-90 and team? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the answer is no. but No. But no, here, but, but here, here's one of the good things. Right. We, we talk in baseball about mm-hmm. how many games it takes to determine who the better teams really are. Yeah. Because, because there's so much noise in any That's given right. game. Now, the positive side of that is that the Phillies can beat anybody on any given night. That's, so, exactly exactly that's the right. beauty of baseball. You, yeah. you, you go out to the park tonight and you could see anything happen. I could. I could. Well, not only that, you know, you say, well, they're only going to win 72 games. Well, 
that's about 45 percent i mean 45 percent is not that bad and let me just say I agree with Shane completely. I love the young players the Phillies have. I think, you know, Mikhail Franco, yeah, you know, that's a, they've got some guys a, that are, you know, they probably have, this is, this relates actually to our speaker, uh, uh, Brian, was it, May? The, Brian. Brian, the golf guy. Bra- yeah, we'll get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the reason, oh. I, yeah, Darren May, Darren May. The reason I liked what he said is when you're a 20 handicap golfer, there's one area you can yeah. fix. Well, when you're the Mets, of uh, the Phillies, there's four areas <laughs> okay. that you could work on, and any one of them is going to help them improve. And that's why when you know they start They've getting got, younger they, yeah, players, I've they got, have less pieces. They have they can it, fix all over the field, and it, it will it's help. It's a silver so, lining to the phrase. There's lots of room for improvement, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, by the way, was it a football game? Philadelphia beat Washington on Saturday, seventeen to three, and we scored twelve runs in the first inning. Yeah, twelve runs first. Twelve yeah. runs oh first God. inning. All right, well, and, but then the beauty of baseball is we lost fourteen to four yesterday. Yeah. So you know, you win some, you lose some. But on average, we scored, we outscored the other team twenty-one to sixteen. But unfortunately, it was one and one. It's Gotta still, love that variance, man. That's that's about as high variance as I did not know that was possible. That's remarkable. All right, guys, that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We're here every Wednesday morning. Big thanks to Matt Johnson, our producer, to Daniel Bruno on the board. Audie Weiner, our collaborator, not in with us today, but out doing Audie things. He will be back. This has been Cade Massey along with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Come back and join us next week. Some combination of us will be here live 8 to 10. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.